welcome to the Leading Through the Enneagram podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Pritz. Together, we will explore how the Enneagram typology system applies to leadership. We interview leaders that share their Enneagram journey and how it's impacted the way they lead in their organizations, in their communities, and in their personal lives. Today, my guest is Eric White, and he runs a growth and insights firm called Revealed. He and his team help tech companies understand, predict, and create demand for their products. Some of his recent clients are Twitter, Netgear, and Asana. And if you would like to find him on um, Twitter, he is active there and also on LinkedIn. And if you hang around to the end of our conversation, uh, you're going to find out some interesting facts about Eric, um, super exciting stuff about what he does in his neighborhood that's really um, lighting him up. It's a new hobby. So let's get into it. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So we got connected through LinkedIn, which is one of the fun things about LinkedIn. And one of the reasons why I love it so much is you commented on one of the podcasts that I posted and I thought, you seem like an interesting guy. Let's hear your story around the Enneagram. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you first got exposed to the Enneagram and then just talk through how you figured out your type or what that looked like? Sure. Yeah. So. I would say four or five years ago, it seems like several of my friends were becoming interested in it. And there's just a lot. It seemed like every time I was having coffee with someone, the idea of the Enneagram would come up. And so a few people recommended that I read a book and uh, that I not take a test, but that I read a book and learn about myself and uh, go from there. And so I picked up uh, the book called, I believe, The Road Back to You. Yeah. And I read through it, and that would that was my intro, I guess. Yeah, well, I think that's great advice to read about all of the types versus taking a test. Mm. I I use tests in some places just because it gives me a starting point as a, a coach and a leadership development trainer. But for the most part, I think it's really valuable. I, I would imagine that you also um, were able to learn about some of the other types. So as you were reading about the other types, you're probably like, oh. I think somebody in my life might be a one. <laughs> and, and this just explained to this person. Wow, that's really that's cool. Right. So I think that's there's right. a lot of value in exploring all of the different types. So did you discover your type immediately when you read it? Was it like, oh my gosh, yes? Or did you have a little more um, reflection that you had to do in observation time? I've heard some people use language like, I read through the book and I figured out my type and it was like someone was peering into my soul. I did not have that experience my first time through. My first time through was actually just like exactly what you said, discovering the types and the motivations of some key people in my life. And when I read through the book, that was the thing that really captivated me and and got my attention and um, helped me the first time I read through it. Really didn't even honestly think very much about myself the first time I read through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had the same experience. So and I took a test because I didn't know what I was doing. And so it said I was a three and I'm actually a nine. And so nines can be really confused about their type because we see ourselves in all of the different types and we kind of see both sides of everything. Um, And so we can be we can be some of the hardest to type. And so it took me about a year to really land on the fact that I was a nine. But the gift in that was this exploration of all the different types and, and kind of better understanding how those people show up in the world. So, yeah. so can you share what type you would most identify with? Yeah, sure. So I, and 
it, it took me a little while. Like I, I sort of wavered between feeling like I was a three or a four and um, through some different conversations I knew with people. Um, and, you know, really it, it, people started prompting me with some different questions. Like when this type of situation happens, do you feel more like this or more like this? And so I had some people who were really interested in it and knew like you and know a lot about what they're talking about. They were able to ask me some questions and help me figure out that I'm a three. Yeah. Okay. So what were some of the ahas like, with being a three where you, where you were a little bit asleep to, or maybe that you've woken up to? <laughs> the, the main things are, I'm very aware of people's reaction. Like I, I can read a room. And so when I go into a room or when I'm doing a project and we're giving a presentation or something, I'm, I'm able to really look around and, and assess what it is that people are thinking and I'm able to react to that very quickly. And I do that in a lot of situations. So I'm able to sense, you know, I want people to perceive me in this certain way or I want people to engage in a situation in a certain way. And so I don't necessarily care about what they're feeling. It doesn't make me feel happy or sad. It's just more of a, you know, ability to read that and then, and then react. I think that were, that seemed to be the big finding that helped me realize I was a three. Yeah. Well, and that can be a real superpower as long as it's not deceitful, right? You know, as long as you're walking into a room and and reading the people in a genuine way um, to help serve them, I think that's a a really valuable asset to have. And type threes tend to have that. It's when it's when they get into that kind of deceit area um, and disintegration that that it gets challenging. So yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, of course, there's been there's been plenty of that in my life. And that's actually been on the on the personal level. I think that's been the one of the more helpful things is to be able to recognize when I'm being deceitful or when different motive, different parts of my motivations are creeping in to um, cause me to make maybe treat people the way that's not really how I want to treat people. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me how you are with feelings. So you land in that feelings center, um, but threes right. tend to sort of fall asleep to feelings because they tend to feelings tend to get in the way of them reaching their goals. So tell me your experience with that. Do you feel like you have close access to feelings or has that been something you've had to work on? <laughs> That's a really good question because on a, for a few different reasons. The first is that I've very much discovered I have feelings, but I don't necessarily pay attention to them. Or like you said, I, I view them as being inconvenient or unhelpful. And so if I'm in a situation and I'm uh, feeling angry about something or angry towards a person, I'm able to recognize, you know, this this anger isn't going to help me get what I want unless by unless that anger does help me get what I want and then I can leverage it, but it's not something that I dwell on or um, really think about very much. The really interesting thing for me through this whole process has been that I do customer research. And so I spend a lot of hours every year talking to people and a lot of times their feelings and emotions are, are things that we plunge into. And so what's been interesting is that there's, you know, I had this odd capacity to recognize few people's feelings and help them explore their own feelings, but it's never really because I am interested in them necessarily. It's more, this is, I'm able to treat it more as data. <laughs> so yeah, um, access to my own feelings, right. That's, um, that's been a, a growth area for me. It's not something that uh, you know comes naturally. Yeah, 
don't worry, me too. Don't feel bad. So I have a feelings <laughs> wheel. It literally has like anger. And then it has that's, another that's... way to describe anger. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's me. I feel resentful. That's a little different. So yeah, I don't, I don't think we are alone in this world. I think twos and fours probably have the closest access to, to feelings, but it's certainly a muscle that we could all work um, in that center. I think that, that feelings haven't been something that we've really been taught, right? We sort of have to almost unlearn mm-hmm. some of the things we were taught in, in childhood. You know, it's like we were only taught to have the happy feelings or to be happy. And if we were sad, people, adults came up to us and said, why are you sad? Stop crying. Don't do that, you know. So, yeah. so, I think we sort of all receive that that message in some ways, just based on our culture, that it's not really okay to to show your negative emotions anyway. Maybe the positive ones, but not the negative ones. So that's been a journey for me too, too to sit in some of those uh, more negative emotions or perceived as negative emotions, and yeah. just kind of let them happen, and then go from there. Right, just sit with them for a little bit. So I think it's been a good. I remember. <laughs> That's a really good example. I remember at um, the church that we're a part of a few years ago, there was some situation where, I don't know, a child had died or something like that. And I remember the pastor saying, you know, this is this is a time where we need to really, we're going to take some time this morning. We're actually going to dwell inside of our emotions. And I think that was the first time I had a realization that what you just said is really true because I thought, well, the the emotions that we're allowed to engage in this setting are those of either resignation or um, submission or those of sadness. But I'm sitting here thinking, I want to throw a rock through the window. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, if, I, if, if, if there's, you know, if I've, if I've got these, this emotion, emotion of rage, I felt like, I don't think that that's going to be uh, very welcome in this yeah. setting. And so I think you're right. I think that we have a lot of cultural s- systems in place that, uh, narrow the amount of motions that are appropriate to be expressed in certain settings. And that probably um, doesn't help people like me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we just end up sort of just bottling all of that and it comes out eventually. Our bodies actually store a lot of our emotions. And so if we don't let some of that out, eventually it does happen. So, um, you know, a lot of people that store that anger will have like this, whoa, you know, here's this, all of a sudden this person just blew up on me and I, that came right. out of left field, you know, those types of things. So I think it's important to be aware of, but it's certainly a journey for me as well. It's not something I have nailed down. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So you learned about yourself that you were a type three, right. you learned, you know, that you can walk into a room, read a room. How did that change you as a leader, as, um, or how did you interact better with coworkers or even, you know, you mentioned you do customer research, you know, how did you, right. how did you start using it practically in your professional life? It was, so I had this situation that, um, my wife and I went to some sort of a weekend workshop that was around the Enneagram and the person who was leading it, and I think this is how you and I connected is because I shared this story. The person who was leading it was talking about threes. And I think this person was even a three himself. And he said, the problem with threes is that they feel like they can create reality and they don't have to care about other people's feelings. And he moved on in the conversation. But for me, it was like this. That was like the someone peering into my soul. And it it was, I, I know he intended it to sound negative. But to me, I thought this is the most liberating thing <laughs> yeah. for someone to say. Because it was like, well, he just described me and 
the things that I deeply desire um, in yeah. my life is to is to create reality. And so it really helped me because I think there were some because I didn't have that language or I didn't have that way of really thinking about myself. It really helped me figure out what I'm good at and where I can contribute in ways that others can't. And so um, my wife, I mean, we can talk about her in a moment, but my my wife is very much a whatever is present and happening right now is the only thing. And for me, it's always whatever's in the future is the is the only thing. And so as I work in marketing and um, you know trying to persuade customers and and help companies grow, it, it, understanding that about myself that I'm wired in this unique way really helped me realize I actually can contribute and and help people do things that by themselves they're not able to do because for me I'm always thinking about constructing some new reality. I never really care about what's happening now. What's happening now to me is already in the past. And you can't control it. I'm always thinking about what can we do to be making some new reality that we're going to um, love and and be successful inside of. Yeah. So that that understanding of myself, so first of all, realizing that it's there and that it's different um, is good. Because you know, when you're selling yourself, you're always looking for an edge or some unique way that you can contribute that's that's positive. So it really helped me um, understand a little bit more about my value proposition. Um, and it also really helped me understand what excites me and, um, you know, the, the types of things that I'm really interested in doing that, you know, create a lot of energy. And uh, so I've been able to separate now the different types of work. So there's some types of projects that I really seek out and try to do and others that I realize I don't care that much about that. And I should probably avoid that because it's not going to really help the customer and it's not going to be good for me in the long run. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of threes that land in in sales and those types of of roles, and I think because marketing has changed a lot and people want really genuine marketing, mm-hmm. they want to feel like they're getting an authentic product. I think for threes, if they're not healthy in those roles, I don't think they do as well as they used to, right? And so, yeah, so really being able to, I think, be genuine, take those masks off that threes tends tend to put on. And show people a little bit of even vulnerability can be challenging. So I think the threes that are healthy, I think they thrive in sales roles. I'm I'm not sure. I don't really I don't know for sure, but I could speculate that those that are unhealthy and they're still armored up, wearing those masks, shape shifting, being deceitful, I'm not sure that they're gonna um, have long term success. That that's just my thought. So what do you think about that being in marketing and and in somewhat of a sales role? Well, I think the whole reason that you're doing this podcast and, you know, at the beginning when we talked about what you wanted out of this is you kept using that word authentic. And so I do think that we're living in this new age where people can connect a lot easier than they can, than they ever have been able to in the past. And so I think part of what happens is the the closer that you're connected with someone, the more you're able to sniff out BS. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now people can now I don't know if you're if you're in a sales situation and the prospect can come back and look at your LinkedIn profile and look at your Twitter profile and maybe even on Facebook and see, you know, I mean, you're just able to see a lot more about each other um, yeah. than than you ever really have been able to in the past. And so yeah, I think that I think that you're probably right. I think there's a a, a much bigger push towards being um, towards transparency and yeah, towards um, yeah, integrity and, and honesty. I think that's probably true. Yeah. 
And that sounds like a good good thing to me. <laughs> so yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Especially <laughs> yeah, if you right. want to if you want the long term strategy, right? Like some of those things work short term, but they won't build long term relationships for sure. So well that's right. And yeah. you know, most if you run a business, you know, most businesses make money make their money not off of a first engagement or first sale. It's the it's the lifetime value of a customer. And so yes, I think that if you're deceitful or if you're one-sided in your thinking in those first engagements or those those first sales, you're a lot less likely to enjoy a long-term value where those things do become more profitable. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So do you have anyone that you work with that they either know their Enneagram type or you have at least been able to sort of narrow down who they are and and (laughs) how has that changed relationships from a working perspective? Yeah, so I have my my primary co-founder, uh, a guy named Alan, who, um, yeah, I really you know I love working with Alan, and you know he he wrote a book. Um, it became this huge lead magnet, and we got all kinds of cool projects. I mean, we you know we've kind of been around the world together over the last few years, and we've taken trips to um, Estonia and London and um, India and Colombia and. The first time I read through the book, I was telling you that the the most impactful thing to me was understanding other people who are important in my life a lot better. And he was one of those. And so I would notice a lot of times we would go out to, like if we'd be at a client site for a week and he and I would go out to dinner, um, I would be like, wow, this is great. We're going to have a nice meal. We're going to drink a few glasses of wine. Let's have some fun and gossip and, you know, I don't know, <laughs> just do whatever people do. And you know, when you're kind of unwinding at the end of the day. And it just, it always seemed to me like it was excruciating to him. Or if we went out with a client at the end of the week to have a meal, um, for me, it was a very energizing experience. I loved it. And it would just, I'm like, why is he acting so miserable? And I just never, I could never understand it. And as I read through it, and you told me his number, right? I, I've forgotten his number at this point. I, think well, I, think I six, guess he was but, a five, but... Oh, a five, that's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so... Just understanding that for him, it's it takes so much energy to be around other people that when when that's done, he's just he's completely depleted, and um, yeah, and so just even simply understanding like that's why things were weird when we would you know try to go out with a client at dinner, or it has just first of all it's helped me understand and appreciate him a lot more, and I think there were sometimes like you know little minor offenses would. Um, threaten or jeopardize, you know, our this very successful business relationship. And so, for me, understanding how he was wired and what he needed and needed to have and not have in certain situations just was a total game changer. We've never talked about it. I don't even know if he's ever read anything about the Enneagram. It's never come up. But just for me, understanding what he's all about has just been a big source of relief and um, value for us over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, even just reading through the different types, I, it's almost like you can create these personas. So you may not know for sure he's a type five. That's only for him to really say. But out of all the numbers on the Enneagram, the fives tend to have the least amount of energy for other people. Um, mm-hmm. Brilliant people, they deep dive into stuff and they know it. Like that, that is right. their thing. They're really good at that. But they have only just so much capacity for people. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think once again, that's kind of a cultural standard that you have to, you know, have a lot of energy and want to be around people. And it's okay if he wants to just go home and 
not see another human being for the next 12 hours. That's great. <laughs> so um, yeah, I coach a fair amount of people in the IT world. And there's a lot of fives that end up, especially oh, technically in IT. Um, and then we'll have a, you know, this like, you know, type seven leader that comes in and they're all excited and, you know, super people, people and, you know, have all these great big ideas. And the fives are like, oh my gosh, I'm like going to pass out already. I have no, I have no energy for this. And so I've had some leaders, you know, almost give those types of personalities a hard time for not joining the happy hours and not, you know, coming to events and not being able to entertain clients, you know, in the evening after they've been with people all day long. And, and I think just helping those leaders better understand that we just all show up a little differently and there's nothing wrong with either way of showing up. And how do we harness the skills and the talents that we have and put people in the right position? So like the type five probably is not, probably isn't going to do that great with like sales and being constantly customer focused or, you know, with people all the time. And so just using their talents for for what they are and putting them in those positions, everybody's going to win there, right? Like we're all going to be happier and we're going to have better engagement and we'll have more productivity. Um, so yeah, any way that you can harness a type five's energy, I think it's I think that's really valuable. But you have to know that there are people that show up in the world like that. We sort of assume that people show up the way that we do. And there's all these different ways that people view the world and how they show up. So I think that's just a huge... It was hugely valuable for me in my journey to understand that and just give that compassion. Like it was an instant compassion for these people, you know, that look different than I do and show up in the world differently. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. It was the same for me. Yeah. So how has it changed? Um, you mentioned your wife is more of a kind of in the present type person. You're in the future. How did the two of you balance each other with that? Because it, there's value with both of those, right? Um, to be looking at the future, but also to you know be able to be present in the moment. Um, has, right. has she been able to balance you? Or are you um, able to balance her a little bit more? Oh, I mean, just understanding each other better has been great. We had we would have situations. So my wife is a one, and I remember reading through the book, and this this was the the big aha moment for me. And it talked about when a one walks into the room, they see the things that are wrong, and they assume that everyone else sees that they're wrong, and that by pointing them out, they're actually helping, and they're helping you get what you want. And I remember reading through that, and I thought there have been so many times that. I have been so frustrated and um, put off by my wife doing that very thing. And again, it was the same type of thing where I was able to then look at things through her eyes and realize what what she is actually seeing and, and why she's doing some of the things that she's doing. And so um, over time, it has made it so that I'm able to be a lot more understanding and not... Um, we're, we're able to have productive conversations when she walks into the room and sees things. But to your point about the you know present versus future, a lot of the tension I think has come from, to me, it always seemed like someone who's stuck in the present is rigid and not understanding that things like emotions and situations can be changed. Um, pre- the, what's tr- to me, what's true about the present is not true about what's where things are going. And so um, the, but, but to her, my way of thinking about things can seem like I'm avoiding present reality or in the worst case, it can seem like there's a real lack of integrity um, on my part because 
I'm, I'm maybe like not dealing with, with things that seem very true. And so I think we've gotten better at figuring out how those two things can work together. So I think when she's dealing with the situation at, with, with other people, she's able to sort of ask, you know, questions like, is this, am I being petty or am I, am I thinking about this in too rigid of a way? And then I, with her, am able to say, you know, am I dealing with, you know, there's this thing that's happening. Like I'm actually dealing with what's happening right now in the, in the future or in the present. And so for me, it's really given me a lot of gratitude for, um, a a lot of gratitude and then ability to, uh, make it so one plus one is three when we're dealing with challenging situations because I'm realizing like, okay, we actually have these different perspectives and we're seeing things together. We're seeing the full picture of things as they are and as they can be. And that actually is like, you know, this, the superpower unite cartoon where I don't know, you know, water and fire would come together and make something awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love to hear those stories when couples can, first of all, they have to learn about the the different ways that people show up. I imagine when you first got married, you didn't know this about her and she didn't know this about you. And so nope. you have to learn that. But then when you can combine those, man, it's like the Avengers, like bring them together. It's great. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that happens in teams too. So when I see teams that are really well balanced and they have, you know, maybe multiple different numbers, maybe some different levels of health, those types of things, and they can really balance each other out. I think that's, that's where we build, you know, really strong leadership teams, but also companies, you know, and we have all the right people working in the right spots, which we've already talked about, you know, and just having that, you know, going from judging others for their behaviors to really valuing them for their differences. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I know you brought me on to ask me questions, but I'm curious about that because it seems like what then you're able to do when you look at teams is you're not just you're not just understanding the individual people, you're actually able to understand the interactions between them, which are usually what's the people aren't wrong necessarily. Right. It's the interactions between the people. And so does has the Enneagram sort of given you the ability to understand those interactions a little better? Like oh, this person's one and this person's a three and that's why they're having this particular issue? Yeah, for sure. I'm so glad you invited me onto your podcast. This is great. I (laughs) I actually love being on podcasts, so I love when people ask me (laughs) questions. Um, So yeah, there's, you know, each type has a little bit of a different communication style. There's certainly types that are more assertive or even sometimes aggressive. And there's types that want it to just not be sugarcoated. You just tell me. Like if you're if you're talking to a type A, just tell me what's happening and don't right. like bullet point it out. I don't need a long email. Not interested. And so just learning that I think about individuals and having them. So when I walk clients through this, you know, we talk about their type. We make sure they're not mistyped because there's lots of mistyping that goes on. And then you know I have a section in a guidebook that I use that says how to get along with me. And there's you know like ten bullet points for each type in there. And they'll read through those and they'll pull out three or four of them where they're like, oh, that's spot on. That's what I need. I need clear, concise communication and don't sugarcoat it for me. And then you might find a type 9 like myself that actually wants a little sugarcoating, right? Like we want you to softly tell us what's going on, but I want you to tell me. Um, But it needs to be a little softer approach. And so I think when, especially as a leader, and this is hard work, I'm not going to lie. It's not easy to, to look at all your people as individuals and treat them as such. Uh, but it's mm. it's the long-term strategy again. Like this is a long-term strategy to build the best teams. And so when you approach an individual that you know, you're going to have to have a softer approach with, but that's not your approach. 
you have to be able to turn that on, right? You have to be able to treat people the way they need to be treated. And so that's where I see a lot of the value, especially when I work with teams. And people just don't have a way to articulate it until they discover a tool like the Enneagram or, you know, there's others out there as well. Um, but the Enneagram could at least give people shared language. And now they can start talking about, oh, yeah, well, that was my, you know, eight wing that came out. Sorry, <laughs> you know, because I, I show up very differently when I, when I tap into that eight wing and people think I'm actually very aggressive and assertive. But that's not my default. My default is to sort of run for the hills. Like, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't, I don't really, um, you know, I don't love conflict. That's not something that I love to do. But I've learned that I have to have some conflicts and I've learned to, to kind of make it my own, to have a softer approach to conflict, if that makes sense. So, yep. Yeah. There's a, we'll test your editing skills because this probably shouldn't make it into the final version of this podcast episode. But what you're describing is really interesting to me. I've got a friend who worked long ago at um, GM. And he was telling us about when Toyota started to become very popular and successful in the auto industry. And it was driving people crazy because they couldn't figure out how Toyota was able to sell such high-quality cars at such a low price. It blew their mind. And so they bought this Toyota and they started to dissect it. And he was telling me his, his group was looking at the exhaust system. And they're pulling their hair out because they're, they're, they, they took the parts and they, they put the parts side by side. And they're like, every single part, literally every single part that we make is of higher quality. And they, they could not understand how, if, if our quality is so much better than their quality, what, what's the difference in result? And what they finally realized was Toyota doesn't design their cars to optimize parts. Toyota optimizes the system. And so they're not concerned about how does this one thing behave? They're concerned about how does this ensemble of parts behave to create a successful exhaust system? And because they were focused on that, they didn't have to have the absolute best parts in every single um, component. And that, to me, very much right. describes what you're saying is it's very much uh, an optimizing for the system of the, of the group that you're working with. Yeah. And the individual parts can be a little bit broken and can be a little bit healthy or, or unhealthy. But if you're designing the whole system, then you're constructing a way that everyone's working together to create results. I think that's neat. Yeah. No. Well, first of all, I suck at editing, editing. So this is probably going to be in there. I, you know, I like perfection is not a thing for me. So, so I just like it to be just a conversation. Um, but I think that's a great, per- perfect example of what I'm talking about. And I think, you know, I work with a lot of HR leaders and talent acquisition people. There's a ton of talent out there if you can mm-hmm. do that well as a leader. So to me, it's more about attracting the right leader and trickling that down. Um, and the right leader that understands that, that, that gets you yeah. may not have the highest educated, most technically talented person that comes in, but you can really create a great um, company, a great product, whatever that looks like, if if you can take care of that person. So and help them interact with the team. So hmm. yeah, I think I think that's a perfect example of that. And there's tons of you know process improvement stuff that's come out of all of Toyota's work. You know, there's tons tons <laughs> of that. I mean that's like yes. what a lot of things right. are, are based on in change management and those types of things. So yeah. Okay, so we're almost at the end to our time. I'm curious if there's anything else you want to share with the listeners, even uh, you know how to find you, those types of things. Um, maybe share an interest, a personal hobby of yours that someone might want to you know ask you about at some point if you have any hobbies. Oh wow, a personal hobby. So I have recently <laughs> dis- discovered I, I took on the role of president of my neighborhood association. 
Oh, fun. And I had always felt annoyed. You know, I don't, I don't have hobbies. Like I, I hate gardening. <laughs> I don't play sports. Um, I like to read and write. Um, those, I don't know, those don't, those feel like things you have to do, not hobbies. And so I recently took on this role and people both in the neighborhood and outside have made jokes about like, oh God, you know, that sounds like that must be an absolute awful thing. And I'm like, I have loved it. And we have dealt with so many strange challenges and I don't really want to call it politics necessarily, but I've really enjoyed having conversations with people. Um, and in fact, there's, there's one guy on the board who is difficult for me a little bit because he, anything that I want to do, he's sort of there to, to block. And I've come to realize like, I'm really thankful for that guy because um, he really helps make things better. And so, yeah, this, this hobby of, um, yeah, running a neighborhood association has been, <laughs> how's, how's that for a, a lame hobby? <laughs> yeah. Are you out measuring the grass? Like this is six inches, people, you better cut uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, we're dealing with these huge challenges of, um, you know, no one, no one knew about coronavirus at the beginning of the year. And so how do we leverage our neighborhood resources to, you know, best help the, the community or um, Verizon right now is in the process of building these hideous 47 foot towers um, all throughout our neighborhood. And so we start asking these questions of how do we, Verizon doesn't care about us. There's not a number that you can call and talk to Verizon about these polls. You know, they very intentionally uh, separate themselves from you. And so this process of how do we leverage enough people's motivation to work together and actually have a voice um, in these situations, I have found to be a very stimulating uh, sort of thing. And I guess that's been my hobby this year. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of fun is to do something that you don't do every day, you know, because like you said, you're learning some things that you you don't normally do. So yeah, good. Okay. Well, if there's any listeners out there that are super interested in being uh, president of HOA, Eric's your guy. So reach yeah, out to I'm, him. I'm your guy. I'll, I'll help you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on, Eric. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you. Thanks. Yep. Bye. Hey there, listeners. I wanted to let you know about some new opportunities that I have from an Enneagram coaching perspective. So if you head over to LinkedIn or Instagram in my bio, you can see some of the offerings that I have. And I'm also excited to announce that I'm launching an online program. So you can almost coach yourself through the Enneagram and get really factual information, no memes, no stereotypes, and really help you understand the power of the Enneagram. So look for that. That will be coming in June. But in the meantime, check me out on LinkedIn and Instagram and see what I have to offer you. Have a great day. Hey, hey, thanks for joining me as we jam on the gram. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get the latest weekly episodes. That's right. I said weekly. And if you want to follow me on LinkedIn and also on Instagram at Indie Enneagram, I would love to have you. And just remember, When it comes to personal growth, there are seven days in the week and someday isn't one of them. Have a great week.